Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. The cartoon G.I. Joe, a real American hero ran in syndication starting in 1983. And after those two seasons, it would have culminated in a G.I. Joe movie. My friends and I were big G.I. Joe fans, and we were very excited when we heard that they were doing a G.I. Joe movie. Unfortunately, the movie would never make it to theaters and instead would get delayed and eventually just become a straight-to-video release and also be divided into parts that would become a bit of a mini-series. It was still excellent, but something happened during that delay that changed the way I was able to consume or appreciate the movie. Because when the first cartoon was running in all its glory, my friends and I were dedicated viewers. But there was enough of a delay from the end of the cartoon to the movie that most of my friends had moved on. They still liked G.I. Joe, but they no longer played G.I. Joe, and we no longer went over each other's houses to watch G.I. Joe. So when the new G.I. Joe came out, I was pretty excited for its release and thought it would be a good opportunity for my friends and I to sort of have a coming together again to reappreciate G.I. Joe. And that meant a watching party. At this point, my family had gotten a VCR and I remember going to get snacks and making sure my sisters wouldn't be there so we could have the living room and watch it. I also brought out the old G.I. Joe toys, really wanted to make it as G.I. Joe-ish as possible. I guess what I was hoping was that if the movie was as good as the animated series was, that it would reinvigorate my friend's interest in it and that we would all start playing G.I. Joe again. Unfortunately, I was wrong and no one came to my G.I. Joe premiere party, as I call it now. I did watch it myself. I think my grandmother might have came and sat on the couch and watched it with me, very confused as to what was going on. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but not in the same way that I would have had it been released on time or, or just a year earlier. It's amazing how timing can affect your life and your ability to appreciate the pop culture events that are happening around you. One year, you're playing with G.I. Joe and excited about the cartoon, and then the very next year, it's not even on your radar. I'm happy that I fell within the sweet spot, where I felt like I got a very full appreciation of the whole arc of what G.I. Joe offered to the world. And the movie was a big high point in this. I might have consumed it alone, but that was the new reality. And from that point on, most of the things I did related to G.I. Joe, I did myself. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about G.I. Joe the movie. We'll talk about the people who helped create this amazing film. We'll talk a little bit about the plot, the cast, its delayed release, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
G.I. Joe the Movie, or as it was known in the UK, Action Force the Movie, is a 1987 animated film which is based on the G.I. Joe toy line by Hasbro and the cartoon series G.I. Joe A Real American Hero. Now this is the fourth part of a series that I've done on G.I. Joe, so if you have the time, you might want to go back and listen to some of the other parts. It'll really fill you in on the background, but I'll try to give a little bit of an overview for those of you who have not listened to the other episodes. G.I. Joe The Toy Line was made by Hasbro. They had started making the toy line in the 60s and was revived in the 80s. This version of G.I. Joe is based on that 80s revival. Hasbro would enter into a relationship with Marvel Comics to produce a comic book and an animated series. The animated series would be produced by Sunbow Productions, which is a storied animation company, and would be animated by the Japanese company Toei, also a legendary company in animation. And they would have a cartoon series that would run for two seasons, and this movie would end Sunbow's association with G.I. Joe in this incarnation. Afterwards, it would be produced by the company Deke. Now, if you watch G.I. Joe the movie, you will see that Ron Friedman is credited with writing the film. If you read and listen to interviews, Friedman and Buzz Dixon, who is credited as a story consultant, had very different views on who wrote what in the movie. From what I've been able to ascertain, Ron Friedman did the original draft of the film, but then most of it, and I mean most of it, was rewritten by Buzz Dixon. Ron Friedman helped to create not just G.I. Joe, but also the Transformers. He was born in 1932. He's a producer and writer. He has over 700 hours of episodic television that's been broadcast, writing shows as varied as The Andy Griffith Show to The Odd Couple and Happy Days. It was really in the 80s when Friedman took to animation that he really found his calling and he would team up with Stan Lee to create the Marvel Action Hour. Friedman had written the original script and in doing so he had a contract and in that contract it stipulated that no matter how much editing they did to the script he would be given a written by credit. This is according to Buzz Dixon. So when Dixon was given the script As he said, they basically started over. There are things that he credits to Friedman, including a really cool character, Nemesis Enforcer, who we'll talk a little bit about later. According to Buzz Dixon, the original script was very similar to other things that Friedman had done. As he put it, it was another let's find five pieces and put them together thing, which is a pretty funny joke because there are some G.I. Joe plots where they have to collect different things from around the world and put them together. And when they do so, it creates this super weapon that Cobra is going to use to destroy the world. Buzz Dixon was born in 1953. He's a cartoon, film, and comic book writer. Over the years, he's worked on a ton of great cartoons, including Jem, Thundar the Barbarian, The Transformers, Tiny Toons, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Dungeons and Dragons, Inhumanoids, and the list goes on and on. Very focused on cartoons and animations and pretty good at doing it. The film was directed by Don Jerwich, who was an animator, producer, director. He produced dozens of animated TV shows starting way back in 1978 with Laugh Olympics and going all the way to 1993 when he worked on a Droopy cartoon. He also would write and direct several episodes of many shows, his one motion picture credit being G.I. Joe the movie. Sadly, Don passed away in 2021. Another director 
who's important to this film was the voice director because this film has an immense list of voice actors working on it. And they got a really good person to do that direction. And that's Wally Burr. Walter Story Burr, or Wally Burr, was a voice actor and director known to be a perfectionist. And his recording sessions could go on for many, many hours trying to get things just perfect. And so a lot of the quality stuff we saw in the 80s, especially stuff by Sunbow, was associated with Burr. Things like Jim, the Transformers, G.I. Joe. He would also work on things like Inspector Gadget and Spider-Man. Just looking through his list of credits is insane. He also did the voice direction on a very underrated show and toy line, Visionaries. If you have the opportunity to see or collect visionary toys, you should. The Knights of the Magical Light are highly underrated. Interesting fact about Burr, he was a tank commander in World War II, and after fighting at Normandy, he was promoted to captain. Even though he passed away in 2017, his website is still up. It's at wallyburr.com. It is a great website in its simplicity. It starts off with voiceover, 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 lots of exclamation points. Any way you spell it, Wally Burr knows voiceover casting and voiceover directing. And then it says, check his credits, working with hundreds of pro VO actors and scores of celebs on over 2,000 animated TV episodes, five feature films, hundreds of commercials, dozens of video games, and then it has a button that says Google him with an exclamation point. Check his credits here, then Google him, Wikipedia him, IMDB him. Better yet, contact Burr. Feel free to annoy him back. Ah, oh, this is a great website. I wish I had discovered it earlier so I could have annoyed Wally Burr. I'm just happy the website's still up. So visit wallyburr.com. Before we go on to the plot of G.I. Joe the movie, I wanted to talk a little bit about the most dangerous man in the world. The Most Dangerous Man in the World was this idea for a two-part episode that Buzz Dixon was working on that would have revealed the secret history of Cobra. Basically, it was the story of a person who was behind the throne, someone who we didn't know about that had founded Cobra, or at least his philosophies had given rise to Cobra. And G.I. Joe would have tried to track this person down, trying to figure out, of course, why he was so important. And when they do, he's just this professorial type. And they learn that the reason he's so important is that he could actually claim the rulership of Cobra because these were all his ideas. At that point in season two of G.I. Joe, they decided they were going to introduce a new character. This was outside of what Buzz Dixon wanted, a new Cobra leader. As Dixon liked to point out, there was no indication that there was a leader above Cobra Commander, that Cobra Commander had a boss. But toy lines come first, and he was tasked with bringing Serpentor, the Cobra Emperor, into the series. So Buzz Dixon had two ideas on how he would introduce Serpentor into the world. One was that he was part of this civilization called Cobra-La, which is a takeoff on Shangri-La. The other was that Cobra would have to make Serpentor, getting all this DNA from various dictators and leaders from history, and then creating this sort of super leader, and that would be Serpentor. Hasbro heard both of those ideas and said, yes, both of them, do them both, which is not what Buzz Dixon wanted in an interview I heard him say, if you have a good idea 
or multiple good ideas, just pick the first one and give them that. Because if you give them multiple good ideas, they will tell you to combine those good ideas. In other interviews, he does apologize for the name Cobra La, the takeoff on Shangri-La. It was meant to just be a placeholder. And Hasbro really liked it. And Cobra La, it was. It is a kind of silly name. So I bring up Serpentor because he is a very important part of the movie itself and his struggles with Cobra Commander and Cobra Commander being taken out and also the introduction of Cobra La as the source of all things Cobra. Attend, hut! All right! Addy! Then on second thought, maybe not. I'm Sergeant Slaughter, and I got some real hairy action head your way. Actually, I would send most guys screaming for their mama. But then the Joes ain't most guys, are they? The old Joe! Over the next five days, you're gonna see the greatest G.I. Joe adventure of all time. For the greatest roll call of Joes ever! Hawk! Shoot! Hurry through! We've gotta warn him! And roadblock! And yeah, even your old friend the Sarge. My job is to whip you into shape, and I'm talking whip, plus some new Joes. Okay, guys, prove us raw hides aren't raw. Now I'll try to move through the plot of the movie quickly. There will be some spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film and this would bother you, you might want to pause it, go watch it. You won't regret it, but I think if I tell you, it's also not going to ruin much for you. The movie starts out with an amazing opening sequence that is at the Statue of Liberty. Now, the film would come out in 87, but in 86, it was the centennial of the Statue of Liberty. So celebrations at the Statue of Liberty were kind of a big deal. Cobra is attacking the Statue of Liberty for some reason, and this whole sequence with parachuting cobras and balloons and then G.I. Joe characters on jetpacks and a big up-in-the-sky battle royale happens. It's colorful. The music is amazing. At the end, it's patriotic with G.I. Joe planting the flag on the top of the Statue of Liberty and cheering. It's everything you want in an introduction. Also, I want to point out, it also makes no sense. Because at one point, Cobra Commander actually takes the bomb and flies it down to the Statue of Liberty to blow it up himself. Why he doesn't throw it or why they don't use missiles is beyond me. But it's just so silly and just so crazy, the type of thing that Cobra Commander would come up with. Because when it comes down to it, he does not appear to be that good of a leader. So Cobra Commander, a leader in Cobra now, and his boss, in theory, Serpentor, start going at it. Serpentor blames him for everything going wrong, and Cobra Commander blames Serpentor for everything going wrong. But everybody sides with Serpentor. At this point, a mysterious woman, Pythona, appears and infiltrates the Cobra Terrodrome. It's a really great sequence with constant movement and Pythona just doing incredible athletics and beating everybody up as she goes along. If it reminds you of the sequence where Indiana Jones is running from the boulder and through the temple, you would be right. This was borrowed from that, according to Dixon, and it really works. We learn about the relationship between Serpentor and Cobra La, the civilization. We also learn that Cobra La itself is where Cobra Commander is from. He was sent out and failed. And we meet the leader of Cobra La civilization, Galobulus. Galobulus has two main henchmen, Nemesis Enforcer, who's this quiet, mysterious enforcer. 
and Pythona. We learn about the backstory and the history and how they want to destroy humanity. A few other things start to happen here. We do meet a bunch of new G.I. Joe characters, but probably the most important is Falcon, who is the half-brother of Duke. And a lot of the story is Falcon being introduced. Originally, Falcon was supposed to be General Hawk's son, which makes sense, Falcon, Hawk. But they decided on the brother angle instead. Cobra Law and Galobulus's plan is to launch spore pods that have spores that mutate people when they come in contact with them. He will launch them into space and then use a device called the Broadcast Energy Transmitter to deploy them. Falcon, who did some stupid stuff, is given a second chance and Hawk assigns him to the Slaughterhouse, where he is trained by Sergeant Slaughter and his Renegades, which is a bunch of new characters that are introduced. The Joe team, of course, goes after Cobra Law and is able to defeat this ancient civilization through teamwork and patriotism. I can't stress how weird Cobra Law is. There's a sort of almost Lovecraftian element to it with all sorts of organic materials being used for everything and serpents and, and spores and other weird looking things. And I know they wanted to sell this as this high minded place where biological things were so advanced that they could create something like Serpentor, but they really took it to 11 on that. It was a real head scratcher at the time, but I find it even more intriguing as I get older, and I think maybe they didn't go far enough. Now something was supposed to happen during this movie that would have been pretty strong. Duke was supposed to die. It happens after a snake thrown by Serpentor pierces him. Now this death, which kind of gives meaning to all of this violence, inspired the work that they were doing on the Transformers movie to kill off Optimus Prime in that film. So what happened was the Transformers movie came out first, and if you didn't know this, it didn't go over well. Optimus Prime dying just did not sit well with people, and I think for a lot of good reasons. Optimus Prime is much more important to the Transformers story than Duke is, and while killing Duke off would have been very strong and interesting, it didn't have the gravity. But since they learned a lesson during the Transformers film, they decided to redo the Duke death scene. And instead of having him die, he had just gone into a coma. But if you watch the film without listening to the audio, it's pretty obvious that Duke dies. And in the original script, there is a funeral before the final battle. So we don't get to hear, Duke woke up from his coma and everybody's happy. This would have played into a PG rating that they were going for with the movie, which they did get permission from Hasbro to do. If death wasn't enough, there was also going to be a brief topless scene in the film of Zartan's sister Zarana, the master of disguise Cobra agent. It would have happened after she infiltrates G.I. Joe headquarters, and it wouldn't have been full nudity, just kind of from the back. And there's much made of that online. How far did they get into it? And there are storyboards of it. There's actually lots of concept art and storyboards of scenes that didn't make it into the film. There's a lot to be said about having Duke die that would have made the film more powerful. It would have given Falcon more motivation to his story. And just something to always keep in mind is something that Larry Hama, who was the genius behind the G.I. Joe comic books, and I did an earlier episode on that, if you haven't listened to that, you should. Hama said that stories about the military that don't involve death become morally bankrupt. And at this point, we'd had two full seasons of G.I. Joe 
on TV where they just shot lasers at each other and nobody died. And so this was an opportunity to tell a deeper story. And you got to remember, the people who watched this show were aging. This was almost four years from when the cartoon started. So if you were 12 when you started playing G.I. Joe or even eight, you were four years older at this point. You were ready for a more adult story. While G.I. Joe never made it to theaters, it did have a trailer and it went something like this. Right in their own homes, kids everywhere can see if G.I. Joe can still save the day in this high-budget, high-voltage film showcase of their all-time favorite superheroes. And this is for the U.S. Fasten your seatbelt for the supercharged motion picture debut of G.I. Joe the movie. The cast of the G.I. Joe film is big, just like the animated series. Maybe bigger than the animated series in some ways, at least per episode. So I'm not going to go through the entire cast, but I will mention two people that they added just for the film. Burgess Meredith played Galopulus, the leader of Cobra La, and just kills it in this role. Meredith is a legendary actor who had been working in Hollywood for a long time, had great roles on lots of different TV shows. If you're a modern watcher of films, maybe the most recent stuff you might know him from are the Rocky films, and those are old, and maybe the Grumpy Old Men films, but you can go back and watch stuff that he did. He's just amazing, and what a great voice. The other person was the voice of Lieutenant Falcon, who was voiced by Don Johnson, and people in the 80s knew Don Johnson mostly from his work in Miami Vice, where he was a co-star on that. Rounding out the cast, you had people like Michael Bell, Corey Burton, Peter Cullen, Dick Gautier, Chris Lotta, Morgan Lofting, Rob Paulson, and so on and so on and so on. While I love looking at this giant list of characters, one thing that bothered me about the film was all the characters. You get this new character, Lieutenant Falcon, you get these other characters, you get the Renegade, the Rawhides on the Joe side, then you have all these Cobra Law characters, and it's a fun way to introduce new toys. But for those of us who watched the TV series, we were familiar with all the main characters that we loved, and they sort of get sidelined in the new film. Even dependable villains like Destro and Tomax and Zamot are minor, and don't even mention Major Blood, who has very few scenes in this film. This could have been their swan song, but instead it becomes something like the passing of a torch. Hasbro and its animation partners would be working on three films at the same time for three products. G.I. Joe the movie, The Transformers, and My Little Pony. Budget-wise, The Transformers and G.I. Joe were similar. My Little Pony they spent a little less on, probably because of the complexity of the animation. Music in the movie was provided by the same people who provided the music for the TV show, Johnny Douglas and Robert J. Walsh. And I talk a little bit about them in the animated series podcast, but I'll give me an overview. Johnny Douglas passed away in 2003, was a composer, musical director, really worked a lot in the easy listening genre, and would work on the soundtrack of 38 feature films. But he also did a lot of animation, including Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Dungeons and Dragons, G.I. Joe, and The Transformers. He did that in partnership with Robert J. Walsh, who passed away in 2018. Walsh got his start working for Warner Brothers, working on the Looney Tunes, and then moved to Marvel Productions, where he worked on things like 
Jim, My Little Pony, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. The music on G.I. Joe, the movie, is so much fun, and they do borrow a lot of it from the TV series. So you can sort of piece together a soundtrack of sorts, plus people on YouTube help a lot with that by posting fantasy albums that they put together. Unfortunately, though, there is no official G.I. Joe the movie soundtrack release, although they did release a G.I. Joe A Real American Hero soundtrack album that you can even get on vinyl or just download it, buyable via MP3 if that's your thing. Again, if you like the music and you want to get a sampling of it, just go to YouTube. You could find a lot of great stuff there to sort of get your interest up and then decide if you want to invest in some physical media. It's a shame that G.I. Joe the movie wasn't released in theaters, and that is because Transformers the movie did not do well. Transformers the movie had a budget of about $6 million, and domestically it only made $5.8 million at the time. It would go on later to accrue money, but at the time that caused Hasbro and anyone else investing in these things to panic. And so they tried to cut their losses and not go for a big distribution. I'm going to go on record as saying that the G.I. Joe movie is better than the Transformers film. And I like the Transformers film a lot, but I do think that the G.I. Joe film is a bit more creative in a lot of ways. It takes G.I. Joe in strange directions, and I think it might have done a little bit better. But it's hard to tell, and maybe the timing wasn't great, so maybe it was the right decision. It certainly was the less risky decision. The film was released on April 20th, 1987, on VHS. It would take over 13 years for the film to finally get a DVD release, which happened on June 20th of 2000. Ten years after that, Shout Factory would release a Blu-ray version of the film. If you can get a copy of the special edition DVD or Blu-ray from Shout Factory, there is an amazing audio commentary track from Buzz Dixon that is very entertaining. He is candid and witty. It will most certainly make you a Buzz Dixon fan and teach you a lot about G.I. Joe. Now we get all of these new characters and we had all of this great backstory from the two seasons before. Unfortunately, Sunbow never got to make a third season, and instead, Deke would reach a deal with Hasbro to make the next season of G.I. Joe, which would happen years later. And while they would take characters that were established in the movie, so we never really get to see the right type of continuation, which makes the introduction of all these new characters and not focusing on the old characters even more tragic in my opinion. At some point in the 80s, Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's company, optioned G.I. Joe for a live-action movie, which people talked about, especially fans, but like so many things that are just option properties, nothing ever came of it. 87 should have been the best year for G.I. Joe. Sales were strong, you had the film, but many fans of the property see this as the turning point. A lot of the concepts around the vehicles start to get odd. The introduction of Cobra Law and the shakeup of the mythology of Cobra didn't sit well with many people. It's as if they had all of this great storytelling that they had done for years and then just shook everything up. And no matter what they would introduce afterwards, it felt disconnected from G.I. Joe. And we would get some great toys. We would get some fun cartoons that were enjoyable to watch, but it wasn't the same. When I rewatch G.I. Joe and watch it through modern eyes, I try not to look at it and compare it to animation that would follow it. Instead, I look back on what animation had been before it. And on TV and what would have been on the big screen had it made it into the movie, G.I. Joe was an evolutionary leap over what we were seeing 
on TV in the 1970s as far as animation goes. And when you raise the bar, you raise the bar for everybody. So G.I. Joe with its storytelling and its animation and its crazy out there movie might not be considered a classic by everyone. But if you watch it, you can't help but realize that it's a bridge. We would get such high quality animation in the 90s, but I doubt that we would have without the talent that would develop working on things like G.I. Joe and the risks that they took to try to tell stories based on a toy line. It was an impressive achievement, and its film deserved to be shown in the theaters. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy, if you like what you hear. You can follow Peachy on Twitter. He's at peachypixelate. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. If you'd like to support the show, why not drop by wherever you download it and give it a five-star review? It really helps other people find it. You could also support the show by joining us over at Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus tracks member-only episodes, and access to the Retroist Discord, which has been called perhaps the best retro Discord on the internet by me. Thanks to everybody who's been stopping by there and supporting it. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. My backstory is I came up with yelling Go Joe. Before that, they just yelled Go Us or something like that. I'm working on it. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.